It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. IBM made headlines in October when it announced a massive acquisition. It was the biggest deal in the company's 107-year history. IBM announced it's purchasing Red Hat. IBM making its biggest acquisition ever. IBM will be acquiring Red Hat. Red Hat. Red Hat. IBM attempted to become the world's largest hybrid cloud provider. IBM once dominated the computing market, but with the rise of cloud computing, the company's found itself on the back foot. Sales at the company fell six years in a row leading up to the end of 2017. But with the acquisition of Red Hat, some investors are wondering if Chief Executive Ginny Rometty is finally ready to roll the dice. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, we're taking a look at the history of Big Blue, how it's managed to turn itself around in the past, and whether its blockbuster bid for Red Hat will be enough to do it again. then there was basically one company and it was IBM. Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. And by back then, he means the 80s and 90s, when IBM was dominating the mainframe computer market. The mainframe computer market was invented by IBM. They dominated it completely. And then something really, really remarkable happened going through the 80s which was the emergence of this little thing called a PC, which came out of nowhere. And everybody thought it was just a toy. It was a hobbyist thing at the beginning of the 80s. But it turned out that you could do things in business with PCs and then servers working in the background that previously you needed much larger computers for. I think this was the first time that most people got to understand how an architectural shift in computing could completely change the industry. And so you went from big centralised computing to this much more disparate world of smaller computers linking up to servers in the background, running little applications. It was all low cost. You know, it wasn't the big volume stuff that IBM was doing. But suddenly IBM was stranded. A lot of its customers were suddenly finding they could handle a lot of their computing workloads using a different type of technology. And IBM didn't really have an answer to this. Intel and Microsoft were running away with all the profits in the industry. To the extent that in the early 90s, IBM, which had been this tower of corporate America for many decades was suddenly looking in danger and it really was in crisis back then. What happened next? They did the unthinkable and they brought in a turnaround artist effectively, uh, Lou Gerstner. 
from RJR Nabisco, kind of consumer products guy, to try and reinvent the company. I mean, like a lot of very proud companies, IBM had this very strong internal culture. It only hired from within. It simply felt internally they knew better, but actually they didn't anymore. So Gerstner's largely credited with saving IBM. And in the handful of interviews he's done, he talks a lot about that internal culture that Richard mentioned and how when he took the helm, he set out to change that culture. Here he is in 2009 talking to reporter Judy Woodruff. IBM lost sight of what was going on outside its walls. It was insular. It had a culture that looked inward, not outside. What's remarkable is I think what's happening now, quarter of a century later, has many parallels. They haven't got to the same critical point yet, but the same thing's happening. Another architectural shift is going on, and IBM is trying to find a way to deal with it. Here's Gerstner again, this time in a 2012 interview on CNBC. We rebuilt the company around a new strategy and a new culture that said we're going to win delivering solutions and services. So, yeah, let's let's get into that. What is it that Gerstner did to save the company? He spotted the flaw, the real pain point in client-server, this new computing architecture. Companies were building lots of applications. The trouble is that companies ended up for every application, they had another server. For every computing job, there, there was this plethora, this kind of landscape of servers everywhere in silos. They couldn't aggregate their corporate data um, and they couldn't make it all work together. It was really, really challenging period for big business. And Gerstner spotted this and he realized IBM had a lot of core technologies that could help. But over and above that, they needed services. They would be a services company. And so before anybody else, he hired basically an army of technicians who could go into companies and sort it out, sort out this mess that had been created. Gerstner also saw how big business was being affected by computing and by digitization. Executives and their IT departments needed help to understand how to build the right systems. So Gerstner pushed IBM further into consulting services. It was a very effective kind of turnaround to the extent that after a decade, IBM was the model for you know all corporate computing companies. I mean, they literally reinvented that business. And every company was saying, how can we be more like IBM? And so if IBM wasn't going to be able to immediately compete with the PC boom, they'd be the company that every other multinational corporation needed to keep their own systems running. All our customers were using PCs, were using servers. And this was the golden age for Intel and Microsoft as well. But IBM's customers needed to combine all of this technology into something coherent. There was a slogan in tech departments, you know, you never get sacked for buying IBM. If you're an IT buyer and you've got a huge complex problem to sort out, be safe. Hire IBM because they're the gold standard. Richard, how would you describe Gerstner's legacy at IBM? Gerstner's legacy is secure. I mean, what he achieved was remarkable and always will be seen as remarkable. Before Steve Jobs turned around Apple, it was clearly the biggest corporate turnaround. And I think it's safe in the history books. I think it's what happened next that gets particularly interesting. Gerstner's successor, Sam Palmisano, basically doubled down on Gerstner's strategy. He actually got Warren Buffett to invest in IBM and actually invest billions of dollars in IBM. 
Warren Buffett had never invested in tech. You know, he famously only invests in companies if he's sure he can get his money back. Most importantly, if he believes it has a moat, you know this company can withstand competition. This company will still be churning out cash in five and ten years' time. Parmesano did something else that was unthought of in America. He actually laid, laid out a five-year financial plan. Parmesano said, in five years' time, I will be earning $15 a share. And this is how I'm going to get there. At the point that he left, it seemed to be working so well that his successor, Ginny Rometty, really didn't have much option but to follow through. She inherited this five-year plan and she had no option but to follow through. And it turned out it was just the wrong thing to do. Big change at Big Blue, the company that years ago was a sea of white males wearing white shirts, now has a woman in charge, and that's a first. Change at the top of IBM, Virginia Rometty, a senior vice president who handled sales and marketing, will succeed Sam Palmasano as president and CEO. So Ginny Rometty takes over in 2011. Why was sticking with Palmasano's plan the wrong thing to do? Well, the world had changed again. And IBM thought it had a plan for the change. It turned out it didn't. And it was the arrival of cloud computing, a re-centralization of computing into very large data centers. They could see what was coming down the road to hit them. They went out and bought a cloud company called Software. They just didn't invest enough. They didn't go big enough. And this was, I think, largely because Ginny Rometty was tied to this five-year plan. And they were too cautious. They didn't go all in. And what's happened now is that you know, a lot of their customers are switching to the cloud and they're putting a lot of their new IT spending with Amazon and Google, companies that you'd never have dreamed would be IBM competitors 10 years ago. And so IBM is now on the back foot in the middle of a big architectural shift in computing. So IBM is this big old sort of legacy corporation looking at these very deep strategic plans, which, you know, the idea that kind of runs counter to what we hear from Silicon Valley these days about moving fast and breaking things. How did IBM react to what was going on around it? IBM's answer was what IBM's answer normally is. We will reshuffle our portfolio businesses. We'll get rid of things that look like old tech and we'll invest more heavily in things that are new tech. You know, they could see that AI and the cloud were the coming things. They were one of the first big tech companies to really make a mark in AI with Watson, a system they built to play Jeopardy! the word game. And now the newcomer, developed and programmed especially for this moment, making its first appearance on our national television program. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Watson. So IBM saw it. They could see that this was the coming thing and they made a mark. They simply failed again to spend enough to adapt this new technology to their big customers. They didn't manage to scale it up, as the people say in technology. They didn't have the right formulation for whatever reason. They failed to generate new revenue. And while all this was happening, their old business was shrinking. And so they had six years of shrinking. They lost 25% of their revenues, which is terrible for a big corporation. And the question has always been, at what point does the growth kick in? At what point does the growth kick in? And, you know, we're still asking that. 
So my inclination is to ask why they didn't figure it out, why they didn't see the signs that they had to make a bigger investment in order to really stay ahead of the curve. It's very, very easy from the outside to say, why don't big companies move faster? They can see what's coming. Why don't they respond? The answer is culture, culture and process and existing business and priorities. But I think there are a few extra things in IBM's case. That five-year plan was a real hindrance because Rometty, as the new CEO, lived with that for I think two to three years after she came in, she was living in the shadow of her predecessors who'd built what looked from the outside like a very successful new business model. And eventually she junked the five-year plan. I think execution is another thing that, you know, they did see these things and they did start to invest in them. They didn't come up with the right products and the right solutions that people wanted to buy. How did Amazon beat IBM to claim a significant portion of that corporate cloud market share? Amazon managed to get people to start shifting really important corporate work into their cloud, you know, to do things that might have seemed a huge risk that a lot of people thought was going to take many years to happen. It actually happened much quicker. The ground shifted much faster. IBM has now got to a point where they felt they needed to make a very big acquisition to get that kind of missing link, that piece of technology that's going to help them bridge this world. IBM announced it's purchasing Red Hat. IBM making its biggest acquisition ever. IBM will be acquiring Red Hat for $34 billion. IBM CEO Ginny Rometty calls this acquisition a, quote, game changer. So that brings us to the end of October, when IBM announces it's going to spend a whopping $34 billion to buy a company called Red Hat. Richard, when you hear about a legacy company like IBM making such a big acquisition, what does it tell you about the company? When a company tries to make a giant transformative acquisition, it's always a sign that they're taking a risk, that things have got to a point where they can't manage in any other way. And it's always a warning sign. You know, they're spending nearly a third of their own value on Red Hat, an open source software company, to hopefully give them this extra bit of technology they need and the extra customers to fill the gap. So will this be a perfect union? So Red Hat itself is trying to rebuild itself for the cloud. So it's it's not like this is the instant missing link that you can plug into IBM's machine and everything works. Another important piece of all of this has to do with something called Linux. It's an open source operating system a kind of rival to Windows. Red Hat was largely responsible for commercializing Linux. We've now got to a point where Linux is the standard. It's a standard inside Google, inside Amazon, and inside a lot of corporate data centers. And Red Hat, you know, has done well out of that, but it's now slowing down. This year, the growth in that is slowed to below 10%. And because of that, Red Hat stock has slipped. It has a few newer products, and they are very new, and they don't generate much revenue right now. But it has a few newer things that actually do help plug that gap. And that if you're on Linux, then you can add these other things, and it helps you manage your workload and move your computing into the cloud and back. And so IBM's thinking, well, so we can buy Red Hat, we can tap into these newer things, we get the Linux bit too. So it doesn't answer all of IBM's questions immediately, and it's... It's now going to have to integrate all of this technology into its own technology. And it still has to 
you know, convince customers that this is the right model for the cloud. Richard, you talked about the parallels between this particular era and the Gerstner years. Gerstner was obviously successful in turning around IBM at the time. Can it be done again? I think Rometty's put a finger on a couple of problems that her customers have, a couple of pain points that need solving. One of them is the complexity that people aren't just going to go to Amazon, put all their computing into Amazon's computers and leave it to Amazon. They have very complex environments to manage. A lot of these corporations and governments are IBM's customers. This is the problem that needs solving. So I think she's right about that. Here's Chief Executive Ginny Rometty in an interview just after the deal was announced. Our clients have five to 15 clouds already. They desperately want help to manage that, and they want to move workloads between that. That's what we do here. Our hybrid- There's also a real concern about consolidation among cloud owners, that one or two big technology suppliers will end up owning the market, and that if you're a customer, you don't want to be forced to put all of your data into Amazon's cloud and, and pay whatever Amazon demands. You don't want an oligopoly that once you pick one, you're tied into it. So IBM is trying to position itself as an independent player? The one that can offer a a route into the cloud, but also not lock you into any one of those clouds. The Switzerland and all of this, you know, we can help you move your workloads between Amazon, Google, Microsoft and your own data center. Richard, what's the biggest risk for Remedy uh, in trying to make this acquisition work? You know, actually delivering on it is not going to be easy for many reasons, one of which is it'll take the best part of a year to even complete this deal, by which time all of her competitors will have responded and have anti-IBM strategies in place. It'll take then another year or two to integrate all of this with IBM, which we all know what a challenge that will be. Right, the, the logistics of actually integrating the two companies together. Richard, beyond the $34 billion price tag, what's this deal really about? The big IT companies... They have to be relevant to their customers. They have to be seen as one of the core suppliers that have the answer that, you know, that can give you the things that you're going to need for the next five years. If you stop being relevant, then, you know, that's a really dangerous place to be in. I think they're stuck in this gulf between, you know, what was and what they hope will be the future. You know, the question now is how many of those old line IT companies are going to make it? So we've touched on the parallels between Gerstner and Rometty. Just like it was back in the 90s, IBM has found itself at a bit of a critical point. What does Rometty's future look like at IBM? This is a company that is very careful about its succession, very proud of having an orderly succession process. Its current CEO, the end of her tenure is certainly in sight, and I'm hearing many more investors kind of asking, is this her final kind of roll of the dice? When's the change coming? And I think people are starting to get anxious for that change. It's remarkable in many ways that a company could go through so many years of shrinking and quite honestly failure of its last strategy and not replace its CEO. But the IBM board, you know, stuck to its guns, believes it has the right strategy, wants to move faster. I think we're going to see faster change at IBM, and that will include the leadership level. Somebody else is going to pick up the baton here and will take on what the last three CEOs have done, which is, you know, yet again, can we remake IBM? The whole point is to sustain this company, not just for these next couple quarters, 90 days. 
it's to sustain it into the next era. It's obviously way, way too soon to talk about any kind of revival, but you know, at least they have an answer, which they haven't had before. You can read much more from Richard on IBM and The Race for the Cloud on FT.com. And we're in the middle of crafting some big new plans for Behind the Money in 2019. And we'd really like to be able to include more of what's on your mind. So if there's a story that's gripped you this year that you think could use with some explaining, or if you've stumbled across something to do with money or markets or corporate intrigue, please get in touch. You can send us a voice memo or an email to BehindTheMoneyAtFT.com. If you send in a voice memo, we might be able to play it in a future episode. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Amy P. Keen. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. Thank you so much to Jennifer Siegel, who was an absolute star producing this episode with me. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with one more episode before the end of the year on Tuesday, December 18th.